Awesome. Okay, so we're up to Philippians chapter 2, which if you know anything about Philippians 2, it's a famous text about uh, Jesus taking on the form of a servant by emptying himself. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's a, a, a great passage for us to think about as we uh, consider uh, the incarnation. So, um, uh, but today we're going to look at the first two verses of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It's in the uh, bulletin and also up on uh, the screens behind me. But before I read that, let me pray and uh, then we'll, we'll jump in on it. Join me in prayer. Father, we come to you today thanking you for this beautiful day. We thank you for uh, the light that we see outside. We thank you for uh, the, the turn of the seasons and we thank you for uh, um, just the reminder today that you're always faithful to your promises. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd encourage our hearts with that. Uh, we have much to make us anxious, much to make us afraid, much to make us angry and bitter and cold and hard. And so I pray that you would break through that by your goodness and your love. pray that you would warm us today by the truth of the gospel, that Jesus loves us, and uh, that that would um, motivate and move us. Uh, we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Philippians 2, 1 to 2, text is in the bulletin, also up on the screens behind me. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Uh, so, uh, Claire, you can go ahead and put my, my notes up there. So. Uh, this 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 verse really uh, these two verses really is just one sentence. And if you know anything about grammar, the, the kind of the center of, of the text is complete my joy and everything else around that is kind of describing and, and dealing with that. And really what the statement is, is a, a, a statement where you say, if, if this is true, then this is true. Now, I don't know if you uh, know anything about logic. Right. When I was in college, I took a lot of hard courses. I was actually a religion and philosophy major, but I took chemistry, I took physics, you know, I, I, I could do that stuff. Uh, but the hardest class I took in college was symbolic logic. And uh, I know some of you math whizzes and philosophy people, you know, you, you think it's, you know, it's, it's the greatest thing ever, but uh, I hated it. It was terrible. My professor was one of the brightest people I'd ever seen in my life. And therefore, you know, that qualified him to be a terrible teacher. And um, it was just really, really hard. Uh, he had like a 47-step proof for the existence of God that we had to memorize. And, and it was, there were no words in it. It was all symbols, you know. And so you had to learn what all those crazy symbols meant and all of that stuff. And uh, I was just never very good at that. And uh, it was really, really, really hard, really, really difficult, really challenging. I would have had a much better GPA if I didn't take that class. And um, I, uh, I remember uh, thinking, uh, taking the final exam, and we had to, we, because we had to memorize this proof for the existence of God, I remember thinking, well, I'm really glad there's a God, because if he didn't help me with this exam, I am, uh, I'm done, right? So uh, it, was, yeah, it, was, it was really hard. Well, Paul's just using logic in this text, right? He's simply, what he wants us to get to is, he's already said in, in verse 27 of chapter 1, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so he, com- he goes on to say with this now, complete his joy. That is, he already has a lot of joy over the Philippians. He loved them. They were probably one of his favorite churches. He had very warm feelings. But what he wants them to do is to behave in such a way so that their joy would be complete, that his joy would be complete. And that would be if they were of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Right. Now, why is this so important? Well, we, we, as I've mentioned before, we think of the church in Philippi as a church and, and this letter of being full of joy. And it is. Paul speaks of joy so much, right? Even as he faces persecution, even as they face persecution. But the underlying thing that's going on in Philippi is there's a, a brewing church split. There's a brewing church split. These two women, Euodia and Syneche, don't agree. It's so much so that Paul wants to write a letter to them to, to call on them to do that. And so, so he's saying, you know, I love you guys. I have so much joy in, in what God is doing there with you. But my prayer, my, you know, what, what you can really do to bless me, one of the ways you can love me, one of the ways you can complete my joy is by being united, being of one mind, right? That, that, and, and so that, that's what he, he wants to be, he wants to be very clear about that. Now, um, and, and he's going to tell them to be of one mind, but he's going to get at that in a way that's a little uh, unusual, the way we tend to think about the way churches unite, right? So let's, let's think a minute, Claire, next slide. One of the things you might think about is, so what about us? If Paul were to write a letter to us, I love you guys, you're dear to me, complete my joy by being of one mind, because, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, Unity, being of one mind, being of one accord, uh, is, is hard to come by. It's really hard to come by. Because you look across the sanctuary and you think, you know, there are people here who really irritate me. Well, maybe they don't irritate you, but what they post online irritates you, disturbs you, makes you upset. Or maybe, maybe, you know, you think, well, you know, those people over there, they're not woke enough. And these people over here, they're too woke. And then there's the vast majority in the middle that's like, what is woke? <laughs> right? They're the mask wearers, the non-mask wearers. The vaccine people and the non-vaccine people. The people who think it's a, it's a spiritual thing not to wear a mask and not to wash their hands. And the people who think it is a spiritual thing to wash their hands and wear a mask. People who think it's a conservative thing or a liberal thing. The people who just simply are trying to hang on. Right? We've got them all. It takes all kinds. So what, what unites us? Re- really... Who unites us? Right? So what Paul does here is he, be, he comes at this in a, in a way that we, we tend not to think about. You know, we would, we would say if we looked at a church that was threatened by division, we would say, hey, you know, it's time to get along. You know, it's time look over there and, and uh, give that person the benefit of the doubt, which you should. You should always give your brother or sister in Christ the benefit of the doubt. 
it's not our default, is it? Our default is to be like, well, especially people that we've known a long time. We already know what they're going to say before they open their mouths. Right? But what Paul, the, the logic he uses here is he begins with the gospel. He begins with Jesus. And he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. And so I want to ask you a question. Uh, actually, I want to ask you four questions. Um, is there any encouragement for you today in Jesus Christ? All right, I'm going to ask that again. Is there any encouragement for you today in Jesus Christ? Okay, some of you are encouraged. That's good. I was concerned. I thought maybe there weren't any. And you're like, I don't speak in church and you can't make me. Uh, I will not be manipulated into responding. Okay, well. There's my encouragement, right? It feels good, right? I think it's a question worth asking and it's a question worth answering. Maybe you don't have any encouragement today in Christ because the world is hard. You don't like your life. Your kids are making you crazy with stay-at-home school. There's pressure in your marriage. People you know and love are sick or in danger of being sick. People you know and love have died. And so encouragement is, is there any encouragement in this world outside of Christ? I don't know, but is there any encouragement in Christ? What about comfort from his love? Is the fact that Jesus Christ loves you any comfort to you at all? Or is it something you take for granted and something that you just blow through? All right, let's get past the love stuff and let's get to the nitty gritty of what really matters. Well, the fact of the matter is the love of Christ is your life and without it, you're dead. So there would be no comfort. In fact, there would be no life without the love of Christ. Is the spirit of God in you at all? Do you sense his convicting, comforting, redirecting power in your life at all? directing you to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of the scriptures? Is there any kind of affection? Is Jesus Christ warmly disposed towards you and sympathetic to you in your struggle, your weakness? Is he? Is that the way he is? You see, one of the things I think that is so profound about this is, is that we, we, we hear these things about the gospel, we hear these things about the love of God, and we take them as things that are, oh yeah, that gets me my ticket to heaven. That gets me my ticket into the kingdom of God. And now what needs to happen is I need to, I am left to my own devices and to my own resources to work this out. God never does that. If that's how you think the, God, the logic of the gospel works itself out in your life, you have the wrong gospel. You have the wrong God. You have the wrong Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, when God gives the law to his people, he doesn't stand there on Mount Sinai and say, here are the ten things you better do. No, before he tells them the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, he says, hey, I am the God 
who delivered you. I've given you a name. I've given you an identity. And I have saved you from bondage. I am for you. I am with you. I have acted in time and in space to deliver you. So what Paul is saying here is, listen, you know, we have this underlying problem of tension in the church. We have this underlying problem of disagreement. We have this underlying problem, and maybe it's not that underlying. I mean, if he calls them out, Euodia and Seneca in the worship service, everybody must know about it, right? So, so the fact is, what he wants to do is, rather than just saying, y'all need to stop that, or I'm going to exercise my apostolic authority here to tell y'all to get along, he says first, he starts somewhere else. He starts with, Jesus loves you. Jesus is for you. The gospel is true. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. He has given you his spirit. He is with you. He is for you. Start there. Start there. Because if those things are true, right, if that is, if that is the reality of what he's getting at here, then if, if that love is in us, then we have that same love. We demonstrate that love to the people who are in the church with us who just irritate the daylights out of us who just are so off. Yeah, they might be Christians. Yeah, they might believe that Jesus died for their sins, but boy, they sure, it sure is hard to get along with them. It sure is hard to find things to agree on. Well, here's what Paul is saying is, we agree on that our source of encouragement is our union with Christ. We agree that we have received comfort and consolation in our difficulty and our sins by this Jesus who lived and died, who rose again for us, who is for us, who is a a sympathetic high priest to us. Now, we, we go on to say that, yes, there is fellowship with the living God through his spirit. The spirit of God lives in me and, and binds me to my father in heaven. <clears throat> and this Jesus is not just just loving me in a legal sort of way, but he has affection towards me. He he longs for relationship with me. At my Friday morning group, we're reading this book that's kind of making the rounds now called Gentle and Lowly, and and uh, we're through the first five chapters. And the first five chapters are are basically, I can summarize them in two sentences, and that is that uh, Jesus tells you that his heart is gentle and lowly. That is his essential nature. And he, and he keeps saying that over and over and over again. You know why? Because we don't believe it. We think that Jesus tolerates us. We think that Jesus has to like us because, you know, after all, he did die for us. I mean, so, you know, there's, there, there's that. But really, most of the time, Jesus is like, you know, you guys need to do better. Well, you know what? You do need to do better. But the reality of that doing better simply is this, that, that, that what the, the Jesus is always warmly disposed towards sinners. Jesus is moved towards those who struggle. Jesus is moved towards sinners who know they're sinners and know that they can't save themselves. He's always moved in compassion towards that. His, his orientation now, yes, he may say, you know, he may rebuke our sin. He may he may convict us, but but he doesn't cut his people off. His sheep are his. They belong to him and he will not reject them. And so because of that, he, he, he's crying out to the, through Paul to this church to be like, hey, this is the gospel. This this is the love of God here. Demonstrate that in your lives. Have this orientation, the, the, the same orientation that Jesus has towards you. 
You know, one of, one of the delights of being a, a granddad, and my, my dad told me this when, when, um, when our kids were little, uh, is my dad's philosophy of being a grandparent was, look, little kids have a million people to tell them what to do. They got Miss Meeks, right? She'll tell them what to do. They got the other people that are helping out there telling them what to do, telling them what, not what to do. But there's very few people in a kid's life who's like, you know what? As long as it doesn't kill you or hurt you, at my house, you got a blank check. Right? <laughs> I know. I know. I see some of you like, mm-mm-mm, that's bad. Well, you know what? You're not my grandkid. So one of the things that is, is profound about that is, is that I want my grandson to know, you know, Papa might keep me from turning the light on, you know, 35 times or something like that, although I did let that happen. But the, the, the fact of the matter is he needs to know that he is always welcome, that Papa's heart is always open to him, and that I do not have the responsibility, as his parents do, my responsibility is simply to love him, to be warm to him, to show him the love of God. His parents will correct him. They will discipline him. They will do those things. And if, if necessary, you know, I will redirect and help him with things. But he needs to know that my orientation towards him is, is warm, deeply affectionate, right? And particularly when he comes to me uh, in need. Now, one of the things that's true of my grandson is he's a he's a sinner. He he sprung fully from Shelby and, and uh, Stock, so he's he's got that in spades. And but one of the things that he loves is he's fascinated with hardware. He loves things that open and close. He really does. I mean, he he wants to figure out how latches and doorknobs work. And so he's we're out in the backyard, and he's got. The latch on the fence, and he loves that latch. Open it, close it, open it, close it, open it, close it. Well, he gets caught a couple of times. He doesn't like that. And so what he's, at Shelby, man, what do you do? If something's stuck, you don't try to figure out how to unlatch it. You force it, right? A bigger hammer solves so many problems in the world. And so, of course, he finally figures out, latches and pulls it and rams the thing right into his cheek. Is he going to cry? Nope. Because I've been telling him, don't do that. Be careful. And he just looks at me, and as this whelk is growing up on his cheek right here, and he goes right back to doing it again because, you know, I'm like, I see you, man. I got, I feel your pain, and I know what that's like, and I love you, and I'm for you, and we got to figure out a way to explain this to your mother, right? So, so the thing is, you know, what we, what we have to see about this is that the rebukes that are ours in the scriptures, the, the things that Jesus does uh, to correct us, it, those things are not from his irritation with us. Jesus doesn't stand around with his, his hands on his hips saying, oh, no, you again. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, because I'm gentle and lowly, right? So as Paul is preparing the church there in Philippi to hear about 
how the lowliness of Christ manifests itself in his incarnation. He wants to remind them, listen, we have everything we need. Every resource is found in Jesus Christ to love, to comfort, to have affection, to be moved towards one another, to speak with one mind, to act with one mind, because we have the same love, because we have the same profession, we have the same God and Savior in Jesus Christ. If you determine that, you know what, I am convicted today that I do not like that person over there, they are they are difficult, I don't like their social media posts, I don't like their political stances, but you know what, I am going to determine to love them without first coming to grips with the fact that I am a sinner deserving Jesus' irritation, but in his love and his grace, he is not irritated with me. He is warmly disposed towards me. He welcomes me. He gives me the gift of repentance. We start there. Then we begin to have the resources that we need to actually love one another and not simply tolerate one another. So we, I, I came across this uh, uh, quote this week from Ligon Duncan. He says this, so he asks if there's any affection and sympathy, if you have experienced the affection, the love, the tender mercy and compassion of Christ, if there's any love and mercy for those who are in Christ, and there is, then shouldn't you respond to God's love and mercy by showing the same love and mercy to your fellow Christians, forgiving when you've been wounded, loving when you've not been loved, serving when you have not been served. Responding with kindness when you've been dealt with in bitterness and anger. Dispensing mercy when you've been dealt with unmercifully. Giving justice when you've not been given a fair shake. Do you see what the Apostle Paul is doing? He's asking you to stand back and realize what God has already given to you. And when you're asked to give in hard places, he's asking you to go back and realize the treasures that God has already given to you and to give out of that treasury. Right. So the, the logic here is anytime God calls on us to do something hard and he calls on us to do hard stuff all the time, but he calls on us to do hard stuff because he's doing it with us. He's doing it in us. He's doing it through us. And he's given us what we need to do what he's called us to do. And then this great quote from Fleming Rutledge, the Christian life of obedience is therefore not a pilgrimage toward a goal as is commonly supposed. It is a witness or signpost to that telos, which is the Greek word for end or goal, that has already been achieved by Christ the Lord and will be consummated in the last day by the action of God. The righteous, justifying action of God and the faith that is engendered by its powerful activity are the two effective agents that call forth the obedience. Right? Jesus is for us. And because Jesus is for us, we can be for each other. It's that simple. It's that straightforward. Now, one word, one word of caution about this as we, as we go forward. One of the things, uh, years ago, Marty and I took a course from uh, what was then World Harvest Mission called Sonship. And one of the things you, that you do in Sonship, one of the things that we did is we, would, we were challenged to launch a love offensive, Right? And that is you, if you have people in your life who irritate you or who are irritated at you that you have a difficulty getting along with and that 
that you would really prefer were not in your church or not in your small group or not in your family. And that what you do with them is you decide that you're going to love them, right? And so we, we got all energized by that because we were being jazzed up by the gospel and we really liked that. We thought, well, you know, we can really do this. And, what, and you, you move out and you, you begin to, to, to do this. And, and I made a terrible assumption about this. And the, my assumption was that what Paul's getting at here is, is that when I go to love people, you know what's going to happen to them? They're going to get more lovable. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm loving them. They're going to change because I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to deal with them in such a way that my love for them will redeem them. That my love for them is going to save them. My love. Now, the, the, the fact of the matter is what, what you come to realize in that is and what Paul will go on to say here is that, that, the, that, that the kind of love that we're talking about is a dramatic, supernatural, powerful love that is most powerfully demonstrated to us in loss and death for the sake of the other. Because as we will read, he will go on to say, have this mind in yourselves that, that, that was in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And dying a death on a cross. So that he would gain us. And so that he would gain resurrection. And so that he and his father would be glorified. So this unity that we're talking about here. This is not some kind of kumbaya moment where everybody becomes like we want them to be. But rather it is more dynamic than that. And in the end, what it may feel like to us is not triumph, but loss. But that loss comes before the triumph of the glory of Christ. We need help with this. You know, we need, we need a lot of love from Christ to be able to begin to affect what Paul is writing about here. So let me pray that he would do that for us. Lord, we, we come to you today confessing that we are needy people and um, it is amazing to me that you can love us and that you love people here in this room that, uh, or in our, our lives who are difficult for us to love and yet, Lord, you are moved in compassion. You have the same affection, the same love, the same warmth and the same sympathy for folks that we find difficult. Lord, I'm grateful for that today. I pray that you would um, energize us, give us unity, as Paul says here, one mind, one spirit, uh, by uh, reminding us of how deep your love and your affection is for us. Lord, we're grateful today that uh, you uh, do not leave us on our own or with our own resources to do what you call us to do, but that you give us as Dr. Duncan said, a treasury from which uh, to uh, seek the resources to be the people that you call us to be. Help us to trust that. Help us to, uh, to believe that. Help us to be moved by that and energized by that. Today, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sins together. Almighty and merciful Father, you have called us to be your desired followers 
and have made us one family, yet we have not lived as one. We have not loved you and one another as you command. We have been fascinated with ourselves and failed to believe we have encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, and participation in the Spirit. We have not treated one another as those who belong to Jesus Christ, having the same mind, same love, and enjoying full accord. Forgive us for our sins against you and our neighbor. By the power of your Holy Spirit, make us a church that is eager to do your will and walk in your ways through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Believers hear these words of encouragement. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 